Judges chapter 3, verses 7 to 31. And if you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, so great a Savior, so great a King. There is none like Him. And we pray that as we look in your word this morning, that you would enable us with the eyes of faith to see and behold Jesus in all of his glory, that our hearts would be filled with joy at the sight, and that by beholding him, we would become increasingly like him and increasingly confident in his victory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Everybody loves heroes. Almost every culture in the world loves a good hero and a hero story. All cultures have this. So if you read stories from around the world, whether ancient or modern, you have stories of heroes. Uh, whether it's novels or comic books or fantasy literature, all of these are filled with the stories of heroes. And of course, movies. You have several movies that are hero stories. Uh, it, this is the same and true if you go to Hollywood or even if you go to Bollywood or Hollywood. Yes, my Korean friends. And yes, even in the Pelikulang Filipino, they have stories of heroes, because we all love the story, especially of the little guy, the underdog, who enters the fight against all odds, engages the big bad guy in battle, the guy who's been making life miserable for everybody, and then unexpectedly, surprisingly, overcomes, wins the fight and then mobilizes the people to an unexpected victory against all odds. Well, today as we continue our journey through the ancient Israelite non-cinematic universe of the book of Judges, we're going to meet three heroes. Three heroes. Each of them raised up by the true hero, the big hero of Israel's story and our story, God himself. Now, I told you the book of Judges is a book that is often PG-13, uh, uh, mostly PG-13, sometimes it's 18 plus. Well, today this is strongly in the PG-13 category, maybe even PG-15, but the book of Judges is also a book of Christ-centered hope, that as we immerse ourselves in Scripture revealed to us in this book, we ought to grow in our hope and joy in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. Well, today's text invites us, together with the original Israelites who read it, we are invited to feel triumphant joy in the Lord's gracious deliverance of his people through his chosen saviors. And each of these saviors points us forward to the ultimate savior, the one who truly delivers us, the one who is true and better, the Lord Jesus Christ. So three heroes who bring us triumphant joy as they point us to Christ, and the first one is Othniel the Good. Othniel the Good. And we meet him in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 3. So verses 7 and following. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherot. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishataim eight, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, 
and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So with this very first story, I told you the book of Judges had two introductions. Uh, we've seen those introductions the last two weeks. And here, the author is giving us a pattern of how this works. He's giving us a clear example. This is the clearest example of the pattern of what you'll see happening again and again and being repeated in this book. You know, my daughters are learning to write stories as part of their English literature courses, and there's certain structures that they have to follow. There's uh, certain characters that they have to learn to develop. Now, this, of course, is historical. This is history. Uh, but this is a classic example of the plot. It's very predictable. It shows us this is how God did it. This is a superhero story with no plot twists, no sudden and unexpected things happening. No, it's kind of a classic story. This is standard fare. This is the vintage story. And it follows the pattern that we saw last week that we'll see many times in the book of Judges, uh, the pattern and the cycle that repeats again and again. I told you the downward spiral as the people of Israel kind of go circle round and round down the drain. And I told you this pattern, it follows this kind of order. It begins with disobedience. The people of Israel are disobedient to the Lord, so disobedience. Uh, then God disciplines them. So disobedience is followed by discipline, which leads to them being in great distress. So in their distress, they cry out to the Lord, and then God acts to deliver them. So we see deliverance. And then soon after deliverance, which of course God accomplishes through His judges, which I told you the judges are really uh, to be seen as deliverers, savior figures, Soon after the judge dies, then there is a decline, and they, gay, they go worse off than they were before. So disobedience, discipline, distress, deliverance, decline. And we begin here with that pattern. This is the clearest example of that pattern, verse 7, disobedience. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. That's a kind of a theme verse in the book of Judges. It's a very sad theme verse, but it's a repeated verse. We saw it last week in chapter 2, in verse 11. We see it again this week. In fact, every major judge, every major judge story is introduced with these words. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's something that Moses had warned them about again and again in the book of Deuteronomy, to not do what is evil in the sight of the Lord by going after other gods. But here we see that they repeatedly do what's evil in God's sight. At the end of the book of Judges, you see that they're doing what's right in their own eyes. They do whatever they want rather than doing what God has commanded. And how did they do this? They forgot the Lord God and served the Baals and Asherot. And, and you might read that and think, oh, did they, forget? I mean, did they have a really bad memory? Did these guys struggle with some kind of memory lapses? They keep forgetting, you know. Uh, no, you've got to be careful. This is, this is not that they just had a bad memory. When the Bible describes them as forgetting the Lord, that doesn't mean they forgot about Him. It means that they chose to disregard Him. It's, it's a culpable act of forgetting. They chose to forget Him. It's almost like when there's something hard or bad that's happened and you don't want to think about it anymore, you know, someone might say to you, oh, just forget about it. In other words, disregard it. They disregarded God. They chose not to regard Him. They chose to turn away from Him, to block Him out of their hearts and minds, not to stay focused on Him, not to keep Him the center of their hearts and lives. They turned away from Him. Their amnesia here, their act of forgetfulness, of course, led to forsaking him. And then they go after these false fertility gods of the Canaanites who were in the land. We talked about them a lot last week. The Baals 
and the Asherah, they begin to serve these gods. And of course, the worship of the Baals and the Asherah was very evil. These were fertility gods that the Canaanites relied upon to bring them rain and, and to uh, increase the harvest. And the worship of these gods was perverse and pornographic and filled with sexual immorality. If you wanted to go to your uh, local Baal service, what you would do is you would go to a temple up on the hill and there would be prostitutes at the temple and you would commit sexual immorality with those prostitutes out on the hills there in full open view. And the idea was that as Baal, the so-called god, saw you committing sexual immorality, he would be motivated to do the same with his goddess friend. And that would result in a good harvest. And this is what the people of Israel gave themselves to. They forgot and forsook the one true creator God. The holy and righteous Yahweh who brought them out of, uh, out of Egypt. And they went after these false so-called perverse gods. And you might look at that and say, how could, they, how could they do that? Well, remember our principle for studying this book. Remember that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6 that these things happened as examples for us. So that we might not desire evil as they did. So that we might be warned and cautioned. Brothers and sisters, we too are prone to forgetfulness. We too are in the danger of beginning to disregard God and beginning to exchange our service unto Him for serving the idols of our own hearts and going after other things that we think will make us happy while we disregard the God who calls us to be holy. This is a danger for us all as we saw last week. And so we need to be reminded we need to be called into repeated acts of remembrance and service unto our God. This is why, by the way, God has ordained corporate worship. This is why this meeting is the most important thing in our lives, is that we gather in His presence to serve Him, saying that my service belongs to you, Lord, rather than to the Baals and Asheroth of this world and of life in the UAE. It's to be reminded of who He is and what He's done for us, so that we do not disregard Him, as we pursue after the things of this world. And you know, people who turn away from the Lord, who forsake Him, they don't often even realize, right? They don't realize the consequences of that. They will wander from the Lord and they forget Him. They don't think of it that way. They actually begin to feel liberated. They think that they're in good. They're good. Things are going all right. Eventually, they find themselves in a pit. And that's what happened to Israel. Their disobedience then brings upon them God's discipline. Did you see verse 8? Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishataim eight years. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. These people face the burning heat of God's anger with them. As one author put it, Yahweh's wrath is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people. He refuses to allow his people to remain comfortable in sin. Isn't the Lord so merciful that even in wrath and discipline, He is gracious? Here He is merciful in His anger. He will not allow Israel to keep on serving Baal. God disciplines them for their idolatry. Friends, you know, if you belong to the Lord, He will often not allow you to persist in sin. No, He will bring upon you the consequences of your sin. He will intervene and act and will squeeze you so that you are not comfortable in sin. That's what He does to these people here. Because they served the Baals and Asherah, they served Baal, now they will serve 
God's agent of punishment and discipline, Kushan Rishataim. And Kushan Rishataim is a bad, bad dude, let me tell you. It, it tells us he was king of Mesopotamia. In, in, in Hebrew, uh, Mesopotamia there is, uh, is uh, the, the longer name is given, which is Aram Naharaim, which rhymes with his name, Kushan Rishataim. So even as you hear his name being proclaimed, you should feel the sense of, the, this is ominous, Kushan Rishataim, the man from Aram Naharaim. And his name appears four times in three verses. Kushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia. And actually, this is one of the biggest enemies in the book of Judges. He gets only a few verses, but you might not realize, this means his kingdom was far away from this far off land, which means his kingdom stretched very far. So he's a big bad guy. And by the way, his name, Kushan Rishataim, Rishataim means double evil. Oh, what a name. King double evil from the land of double river. That's what the land's name means. Double evil from double river comes there. He's an agent in God's hand to bring discipline and punishment upon the people of Israel. Oh, he's an evil guy, this mighty powerful king. And they feel it. Eight years under his hand. You imagine how wicked he was that they would call him the king of double evil. And then this discipline leads them to distress. Verse 9. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. They are in distress. By the way, this is not a cry of repentance. Don't mistake it that way. We often look at that and we think, oh, look, they repented for their sin. No, this is not a cry of repentance. This is a cry just saying, help! We're in double trouble here. Help! God squeezes them with discipline until they come in pain to Him, until they are reminded that He is the only God who can help them. And He responds to their cry of distress. Again, it's not because they repented. It's purely out of His grace. Do you see? How many of us are in distressful situations, even when we were lost we were in distress under the bondage of Satan's sin in the world and we cried out in distress not knowing what to do. And God intervened not because of anything in you, not because your heart was with him, but because he is a gracious and merciful God. It's purely the grace of God. No, it was an outward cry of distress without an inward change of heart. And then we see the pattern again. Do you see? Disobedience, discipline, distress, deliverance. God intervenes. He provides deliverance through His chosen, appointed deliverer. Do you see? Verse 9. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Kushan Rishataim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Kushan Rishataim, so the land had rest 40 years. God raises up a deliverer, you might say, a savior. The, the word that is used there, uh, the root of that word, is the same word that is used in, for Joshua's name and is eventually used in the New Testament for the name Jesus, for he will save their, his people from their sins. So this is a savior figure, and we'll see multiple of these throughout the book of Judges, that God raises up these saviors for his people. And Othniel is here, he's placed first, he's kind of the perfect example and template for the kind of savior that these people need. His name, Othniel, by the way, means the time of God. The time of God. He is from the tribe of Judah. Do you remember chapter 1? Who shall go up for us? Judah shall go up, says the Lord. This is the tribe from which Israel's king was to come. He's from the right tribe. He has great credentials. But what's most important, verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. He is empowered by God's Spirit, because you see, ultimately, victory is not won by military prowess. No, it is won by dependence upon God's Spirit, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And then, by God's Spirit empowering him, 
Othniel takes on double evil, the big bad guy. Kushan Rishataim from Aram Naharaim. And the Lord gave Kushan Rishataim into his hand. No, you know, Kushan Rishataim is probably thinking, who is this guy, Othniel, this little tribal chief coming up against me? I'm going to crush him. But what Kushan Rishataim, Mr. Double Evil, didn't realize is that this is double evil against Yahweh, the living God. And the Lord gives deliverance through the hand of Othniel. Friends, do you behold the amazing, sovereign power of Yahweh, our almighty God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of history, the Lord of the nations. His people Israel were sinning against him and he raises up Kushan Rishataim. He gave them into King Double Evil's hand and now he gives this evil king into Othniel's hand. He uses nations to accomplish his purposes even in their evil and when he is done with them, he will bring judgment upon them. And he saves his people, and they enjoy rest. See, as one pastor put it, behind each judge, raising them up, empowering them, giving them victory is Yahweh, without whom they would be nothing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So this first judge whom we meet, this deliverer, Othniel, is kind of a golden boy among the judges. They don't get any better than him. He is from the right tribe, the royal tribe, the tribe of Judah. The spirit of the Lord is upon him. He is, seems to be a bold and upright man. You met him earlier in chapter 1, the man who marries Caleb's daughter, Aksa, and conquers Hebron. Nothing negative about him, except he dies. Verse 11, then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. You see, the rest that they had was only 40 years long. The land had rest for 40 years. It was temporary. It was earthly. Othniel was good, but not good enough. Because he points us forward to the one who is the true and better Othniel. The one who will deliver us from our sin once and for all. Who will not just deliver us from an earthly big bad guy named double evil. He will deliver us from the double evil that is in our hearts. And he doesn't secure an earthly rest. He secures an eternal rest because he lives forever and will never die. Othniel points us to Jesus. Othniel from the tribe of Judah points us to the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who has conquered Othniel, who is named the time of God, points us to the one who came in the fullness of time for us and our redemption. Othniel, who was empowered by the Spirit, points us to the one who is overflowing with the Spirit of God, upon whom the Spirit of God rests, and he pours out the Spirit in full measure to those who belong to him. He went into the battle. He went into the fight. He waged war on our behalf, and he destroyed not just king double evil, he destroyed someone far greater than double evil. He destroyed evil himself. He defeated Satan, sin and death. And he provides eternal rest, heavenly rest to all who trust him. And he won his victory by dying on the cross, pouring out his blood for sinners that our evil would be defeated. And he promises life and rest to all who would turn from sin and trust him. So I call upon you, if you're here this morning and you don't know this Savior, this Deliverer, to trust in Jesus today. The people of Israel, their deliverance was temporary. And so you see, after Othniel died, what happens? They decline. They decline. That's the cycle of judges that you see repeated again and again. Disobedience, discipline, distress, deliverance, decline. One more spiral closer to the drain. Verse 12. 
And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You've got to get used to that verse because it's going to show up many times, I tell you. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and one person says this, listen, listen to these words. What a sad significance there is in that little word, again. What a sad significance there is in that little word, again. He also says this, God is at no loss for rods wherewith to chastise backsliders. So they disobey again. What do you expect? Discipline again. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what happens? The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So here's another king. Who strengthens him? Who gives him his power to defeat Israel? Who is using him as a rod of discipline upon the people of Israel? It's God himself. Do you see the mighty sovereign hand of God? The Lord strengthened, verse 12, the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then Eglon, he gets these other guys who are also enemies of Israel. He gets the Ammonites and the Amalekites and they form this evil coalition and they come against Israel, defeat them, subdue them. They take possession of the city of Palms. This was Jericho. This was the first city that Israel had taken in the promised land. And now Eglon builds his summer palace there. And they serve him 18 years. Can you imagine 18 years of oppression under this king? And imagine an Israelite born in the year that this battle took place. 18 years, his entire life, he would know nothing but the pain and poverty and oppression of Eglon's mighty reign under the Moabites. What's the result of the discipline? Distress. Again, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. You better get used to this pattern. They cried out to the Lord, Help! Uh, this time, the deliverer is slightly different. The Lord raises up for them a deliverer, but this guy's a little different from Othniel. We saw Othniel the good. Now we see our second hero, deliverer, Ehud the bad. Ehud the bad. And you're saying, oh, why do you call him bad? It's some years ago, you know, I, I, I was living in India. Uh, my cousin, my first cousin, was brought up in the United States, uh, and he came to visit me. We were teenagers, and uh, I had just begun playing bass guitar, and I picked up my guitar, and I played something fancy for him, and he said, oh man, that's bad. I said, oh, you didn't like it? He said, no, 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 well, bad is good. Well, you know, <laughs> so let me explain what I mean by Ehud, the bad. Verse 15, the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud the son of Girah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. This guy, Ehud, is kind of a shocking contrast to Othniel. Othniel's name means the time of God. Ehud's name means where is the glory? Or in other words, where is God? Othniel is an upright, spirit-empowered, righteous kind of guy. Ehud is devious. He's cunning. Shady, a bit morally dubious. And let me tell you, he is brutal. Othniel is a hero. Ehud is what we may call an anti-hero. An anti-hero. And an, an anti-hero is a familiar kind of character in literature and in stories and in movies. Right? This is a guy who's on the right side. This is kind of a main character that you want to cheer for and support. But, but they have these imperfections and flaws. They, they, they have these dark traits that separate them from the heroes. They blur the lines between what's good and what's bad. They're kind of morally dubious. I like to think of an anti-hero so, sort, of, sort of like Loki in, in the Marvel world. Or, or, or Shah Rukh Khan in Bazigar, if you watched that many, many years ago. Or, or, or Leo, uh, the new Tamil movie that came out. Or whatever other world that you're in. An anti-hero is kind of a hero figure, but mm, I don't know. 
something weird about him. And, and it also tells us about Ehud, it tells us that he was a left-handed man. Do you see that? It, it's kind of interesting what it says here. The Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, and the tribe's name, the Benjaminite, means the son of the right hand, but it then tells us he was a left-handed man. But what I'm going to argue here is that he's not just simply left-handed. Actually, the, the phrase here to use that, uh, that is used to describe him as a left-handed man is also used in Judges chapter 20, verse 16. These are the only two places it appears in the Bible. In Judges 20, 16, it's talking about these Benjaminite warriors. It says there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. That's the same phrase. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. They were very skilled. They could use the sling and sling a stone at a hair and not miss. By the way, sl the sling requires the use of two hands. Okay? Not only that, if you go to the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 2, it's describing warriors from the tribe of Benjamin, and the author of Chronicles tells us they were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the right or the left hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. And the phrase used to describe Ehud and these guys from Benjamin as left-handed is not the normal word that is used for a left-handed person or a lefty. No, it implies that this guy is actually ambidextrous. That's the original old Greek translation of the Old Testament translated like that. That's, that's what those translators understood it as. He is a specially trained guy. He, he's naturally right-handed, but he's been trained to use his left hand equally well. So he is ambidextrous. He uses both hands. I'm really sorry, lefties. You know, if you thought this was all about you, God uses left-handed people. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Pastor Andrew Archer, I'm so sorry. Um, I love lefties, but this is not about the lefties. This is an ambidextrous, specially trained, specially equipped guy. He's kind of like Tom Cruise in the Mission Impossible series or Matt Damon in The Bourne Identity or even better, Liam Neeson in Taken. Uh, you know, he has these special advantages, right? Why is uh, Lionel Messi such a good player? Because he can shoot equally well with both feet. I mean, if you're a Messi fan, I'm sorry to tell you this. Cristiano Ronaldo can do the same, all right? They both <laughs> are ambifutrous or whatever you call that. Just look at how God saves his people in the midst of their afflictions. He providentially arranges this guy's life and raises up this specially trained guy who is skilled in the use of both hands, making him doubly skilled. And, and it's very interesting. He is providentially then picked. Verse 15. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. They had neglected to render God his due. Now they must bring offerings to this oppressive enemy king. They don't bring offerings to God. God makes them bring offerings to this guy. And, and the word used there is very interesting. It's a, the word that is used for the sacrificial offering, the grain offering. So in all likelihood, they're bringing big, big piles of grain, of food, to this king. But now God is going to deliver them from Eglon. And he's going to deliver them through Ehud, this double-handed man. And it's interesting, the double-handed man makes a double-edged sword. And as we read the story of this deliverance, this is some serious entertainment, okay? This is better than anything you can catch on Netflix. And, and, and it's brutal, it's brutal, but it's also meant to be funny, okay? It's meant to be humorous. The author is mocking the enemies here, and all of the Israelites who were reading this were supposed to laugh. All right, so as we go into this, you're going to find it brutal. You're going to find some things a little gross. You're also going to find it funny and, and mocking. We're going to have some dark humor, strange humor. And I'm not going to apologize for any of it because, friends, this is the word of the Lord. So let's see what happens. Pick it up in verse 16. Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. So the double-handed man makes a double-edged sword. It says it's a cubit in length. So a cubit was about 15 inches to 18 inches long. That's about the length of your forearm. So if you look at your forearm, that's the length of this sword. It's not a very big sword, all right? 
and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. So for a right-handed person, you would normally bind your thigh, uh, your sword on your left side because you draw the sword like this. Drawing it like this is kind of awkward. So they put them on the opposite side. And presumably when you walk through the metal detectors, or they didn't have metal detectors, when the guards are checking you, they check your left side because that's where they expect the sword to be. But not for Ehud because he can use both hands, so the sword is on his right side. And so he goes along with the people, verse 17, he presented the tribute, the grain offering, to Eglon, king of Moab. And it says, now Eglon was a very fat man. So the double-handed man makes a double-edged sword, which means it's very sharp and dangerous, can pierce easily, puts it on the opposite side, on his right thigh, and then they go to Eglon, king of Moab. I haven't told you what his name means just yet. The name Eglon is very interesting. His name, that's not probably not his real name. This was probably a nickname that the Israelites gave him. Because the name means baby cow. All right? So he's baby cow, king baby cow, king of Moab. And it says he was, the text is saying, he is a very, very fat man. El Gordo. Right? And, 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 you know, you know I, someone saw me, I think it was Roy Ashton saw me before the Sunday equipped class, and he says, you put on a few extra pounds during Christmas. Uh, I just want to say, this is not fat shaming those of us who are overweight, all right? But this is mocking this oppressive tyrant of a king who fattened himself like a cow on the produce of Israel. So if you're a little overweight, it's okay, there's grace for that. All right, um, And the application of this text is not diet and exercise is the way to go, okay? So he's very fat. The text is saying he was really, really fat. The Hebrew is very explicit on how fat he was. All right? So this is the king, fat baby cow. And every time his name is used, it reminds us he's the king of Moab. Right? So verse 12, fat baby cow, king of Moab. Verse 13, fat baby cow, the king of Moab. Verse 15, fat baby cow, the king of Moab. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to fat baby cow, the king of Moab. When you worship the idols of this world, God will discipline you and make you bow down to ridiculous things. When you worship the idols, when you bow down and serve the idols of this world, God will reduce you to serving the things that are laughable. And these people are serving King Fat Baby Cow. And, and you know, the language, like I said, throughout this passage is actually uh, all used kind of words, strange words that come from the sacrificial system. So you have the, the offering, which is the grain offering. That's the tribute being offered. You have the sword. In fact, the word that is used for the blade of the sword is the same word that is used for the sacrificial system. It means flame, and it's used for the burnt offerings. And then you have this guy who is almost depicted like a sacrificial animal. He is a fattened calf. The, the implication here is that he has been fattening himself on the offerings of this people. He has oppressed them, reduced them to poverty, ground them to the dust, and grown extremely large and fat on their offerings. Now what comes next is intense. You know, when I was uh, trained as a preacher, my preaching professor used to tell us one very important rule in all preaching. He said, you've got to Stay far away. Absolutely no bathrooms, birthrooms, or bedrooms in your illustrations. Well, we're going to break that rule today. Because what you're going to see in what follows is some serious bathroom humor. All right? So, verse 18 and following. Watch the fun with, with me. Verse 18 and following. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal. So they go off in a group. They come to these idols, probably set up by the Moabites at the border there of the city, Gilgal. 
And, you know, there are probably escorts going with them from the Moabites. And Ehud sends away all his companions. And in his heart, he knows what he's going to do. He's going to engage the enemy alone. And he turns back at the idols, and he's coming back. And then he says, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, this is really interesting because the phrase used there, secret message, can also be translated secret matter. Indeed, Ehud has a secret matter for this king, something that the king doesn't know is coming. And uh, the king, of course, is responds, he's, oh, wow, he's gone to the idols. Probably the idols have given him some prophecy of how great I am, and he's coming back to tell me what it is. So he commands, silence, and he dismisses the attendants, and all the attendants went out from his presence. And, and the author wants you to see that and say, oh, what a stupid guy. He doesn't know what's going to hit him. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. So there's a special chamber in which Eglon is relaxing from the summer heat. And Ehud says, I have a message from God for you. I have something from God. I have a secret thing for you. And guess what? It's from God. And Eglon, it says, he arose from his seat. You know, one author says here, you have this pagan king rising in reverence. He's probably rising in reverence to receive this prophetic word, this secret word that's just for him. If only Christians would have as much reverence for the word of God. But he rises from his seat. And then what's the secret thing that Ehud wants to give him? What's the secret message from God for Eglon? What, what happens next all happens in slow motion, all right? The, the camera is slowing down. Every action, every uh, kind of frame is described with its own word. Watch. Ehud reached with his left hand, reached, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly, into the stomach of the fat baby cow. And the hilt, the handle, also went in after the blade. So this, I told you, this is 18 inches, okay? 15 to 18 inches, that's a long, long knife or sword. And this guy's stomach... Yeah, some serious girth. And it just swallows up the blade. Not just the blade, but it swallows up the handle. So he, he can't even pull it out. No one can. In, 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 all the way it goes. And the fat closed over the blade. And then the pressure, obviously, causes his bowels to relax. And verse 22, the dung came out. Yeah, I know that's gross. Everyone's thinking, oh, yeah. I told you there's bathroom humor. So there's all of these feces on the floor. And down goes the king of Moab into a puddle of blood and feces. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. And by the way, the word there for porch is a very rare word. Your Bible might have a footnote saying the word is uncertain. All right, the meaning of the Hebrew I think, and most scholars agree, it's probably translated toilet. So this king in his private chamber had sort of a toilet hole, right, that maybe went down into a septic tank, and uh, Ehud escapes jumping through that hole. That's, where he is, that's how he escapes. Yeah, it's rough, it's rough. You think it's rough? Oh, wait till you hear what happens next. <laughs> when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. To the point of shame, the original reads. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. By the way, the author really, really wants to catch our attention here. He uses the word, the Hebrew word, behold, for behold, three times. So the servants come, they see the doors locked, it, it says there, behold, verse 24, behold, the doors were locked. And they think, oh, okay, uh, he's probably doing a big job in there, right? Surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And, and of course, this guy's feces has spilled all over the floor, so it probably smells really, really bad. And so they're thinking, oh, maybe, you know... Uh, this bad smell, yeah, he's probably having a bad stomach. 
irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea. Then he's taking a long time. If you keep reading, verse 25, they waited till the point of shame. And behold, he wasn't opening the doors. Have you ever waited for someone who's in the bathroom and you're wondering, man, how long is it going to take? It's taking a really long time. Are they constipated or what? What's going on here? And, and you've got to think about it. This is their boss, okay? This is their king. This is really, really embarrassing. They're waiting outside. They, they get the smell. They're wondering what's happening behind these locked doors. Several years ago, before I went to seminary, I was working uh, in a place that I will remain unnamed. And I won't tell you what I was doing. I was working this job. And I went to, to the bathroom. I washed my hands. And, you know, I was, I was about to wash my hands. And that, just then my boss came in. And he went into one of the stalls. And it sounded like a bomb went off. <laughs> and I quickly washed my hands, and I ran back to my desk. And he took a long while to come back to his desk. And when he came back, yeah, it was really awkward for me and for him. I don't know for whom it was more awkward. That's what these guards are feeling. They're waiting to the point of shame. And behold, he didn't open. So now they begin to panic. Oh, what's going on? Does he need some help? Let's go check on him. They took the key. They opened the doors. And then again the text says, Behold, there was their Lord, dead on the floor. You know, kids say some funny things sometimes. And I love it when my wife tells me things that the kids say. Well, someone else's kid happened to be at our home recently. And uh, he looked around at the living room and, and he said, Why is everything in here all brown? And uh, my wife says, Well, I think it looks nice. And he said, Brown is the color of poop. Well, here is fat baby cow, the king of Moab, down in a pile of brown. Total and utter shame. And just like you're laughing, the ancient Israelites reading the story were supposed to laugh. They're supposed to find this funny. This is bringing great shame on Moab. Oh, look at what God did. Verse 26 and following, what happens? Ehud escaped while they were delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong able-bodied, by the way, it uses the same word, fat, again there, all strong, fat men, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. He crushes the leader of the opponents. He calls upon the people to mobilize them, and they advance into their victory under Ehud's leadership. Oh, isn't it amazing how God delivers his people in surprising ways and sometimes even in funny ways. As one person said, those who know Yahweh as their God will never lack for excitement. And you can look at your own testimonies, so many of you, your own life when you were lost in darkness and how you came to faith in the Lord. And I've heard many testimonies where there was just something funny, some surprising circumstance or something that took you completely by surprise and the Lord used that to save you. Think of God's providence, how he shaped Ehud's life and shaped his training so that he could use both hands and so that he was specially fitted for this event. Yes, he was a dubious character. Yes, he was an anti-hero. But he performed this heroic act that only he could accomplish and thus delivered the people of Israel. And they had 80 years of rest. Even double what they had before. But then what happens next? Decline. Because you go to chapter 4, verse 1. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. That's chapter 4, verse 1. So both the hero, Othniel, and the anti-hero, Ehud, could not bring a lasting victory. Ehud mobilized them to victory, but he couldn't motivate them to holiness. Ehud stabbed the fat baby cow named Eglon, but he could not slay the hidden enemy within the hearts of Israel or even within his own heart. 
Ehud delivered them from slavery to Moab, but he could not deliver them from slavery to sin. No, friends, you see, sin is a fat overlord. Sin is a power that holds us in bondage, a merciless king that reigns over all human beings, you and me included, and it grows fatter and stronger as we offer it our service. We need, the people of Israel needed, you and I need a deliverer better than Ehud. And Ehud points us to him. Christ The true and better Ehud. Not a deceptive two-handed assassin with a two-edged sword of steel, but a perfect savior, one in two natures. Truly God and truly man, specially fitted, specially equipped to save us. Not deceptive and treacherous like Ehud was, but faithful and true, never dealing falsely. Like Ehud, he engaged the fight alone. He went against the enemy alone against Satan, sin and death. All the powers of darkness against him. But he didn't win by killing. No, he won by dying. He died the perfect death by which he defeated our greatest enemy, our sin. No, he was put to shame for you and me. And he saved us from the wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve. He rose again victorious, defeating Satan, sin, and death. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by his triumph. And now, victorious, he summons us, just like Ehud blew the trumpet. Jesus calls us, his people, into his reign, into his victorious advance as we overcome all evil. As the gospel advances through us and his kingdom advances, as we enter into his heavenly, eternal rest. Hallelujah, what a savior. And he appeals to you today, not with double-handedness, but with blood-stained hands, calling you to come to him and find freedom from that great Master called sin that has held you in bondage all your life. You might be here and your whole life you've wondered, how can I be free? The answer is, you can be free in the one who has won the victory by the cross and his resurrection. Come to Jesus. And he will come again one day with the double-edged sword of his word by which he will judge his enemies fully and completely, save us forever from our sins, And bring an end to all evil. What a hero. We have one more hero that we're going to quickly look at in our passage today. We saw Othniel the good, Ehud the bad, and then we see Shamgar the somebody. Verse 31. Poor Shamgar, he only gets one verse. After him, that is after Ehud, was Shamgar, son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, And he also saved Israel. Who is this Shamgar? He's mentioned again in Deborah's song in Judges 5 and verse 6. It says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, that was a hard time. People were avoiding the highways because it was so dangerous. And they were using the byways. So in this dangerous time, this guy Shamgar shows up. Now I read a whole lot this week about Shamgar. And I'll tell you what, we don't know much about him. His name, Shamgar, is not a typical Israelite name, right? So we don't know where he's from. He may have been Israelite, may have been half Israelite, may have been something else, now joined the people of Israel. I, I don't know. The, the ending there, Shamgar, makes me think maybe he was Tamil. I, I'm not sure. The Shamgar from wherever, it tells us he was the son of Anath, Usually it tells you the father's name. Here it tells you his mother's name, Anath. Anath is a feminine name. In fact, Anath was a Canaanite goddess. So by son of Anath, it might be that his mother was named after a Canaanite goddess, which shows you how much Israel had adopted the Canaanite religion. By Anath, son of Anath, it might be he was devoted. He was a devotee to this goddess before. That's the other meaning this could have. She was the goddess of war. Uh, some people say he, he might have been a mercenary in Pharaoh's army who served Pharaoh. Some people say he might have been a farmer 
Well, you might think that because it says he used an ox goad. What is an ox goad? It's, a, it's an eight, eight foot long stick with, with a little prick at one end to poke the oxen and move them forward. And what did Shamgar, this mysterious somebody that we don't know anything about, what did he do with this ox goad? He killed 600 Philistines. We don't know if he killed them all at once in a single battle or if he stood by the highway picking them off, you know, <laughs> as they passed. We don't know what he did. But look at what it says. The most significant thing is at the end of the verse there, it says, He also saved Israel. And that's emphasized. It, it almost goes like this. He, even he, saved Israel. You see, because that's, that, that's because he, he, even he, points us to the man from Galilee, the nobody from Nazareth whose origins people did not know. And he didn't kill 600 Philistines with an ox goad. No, he saved countless people from every tribe and tongue and nation by hanging on a cross. Isn't redemption glorious? Where we can all say, look at how the Lord did it. He is not a God far off. He is a God who sovereignly arranges all of life's affairs and intervenes to save his people from their sin, even in ways we might not expect. He used a specially trained assassin to rescue Israel from Moab. He used this somebody named Shamgar and his ox goad to save them from the Philistines. He uses the Nazarene from the tribe of Judah dying on a Roman cross to save us from our sins. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let me tell you about one Shamgar that I knew in my life. Uh, this was a man who grew up in California. He came to faith in Christ while he was in university and then decided to go into ministry and he went to seminary. And while he was in seminary, studying for the ministry, he began to wander. He, in fact, turned away from God and developed a drug addiction and became a chef. And he started his own restaurant, made a lot of money, used that money on drugs, opened multiple restaurants to feed his drug habit. Probably most students from his seminary thought, that's the end of that fellow. Ten years later, the Lord brought him to his knees, and he repented. And then he decided he wanted to use his life for God's glory. He moved to India, to Chennai. And he started a restaurant there, and he was using his restaurant as a platform to meet people and evangelize them with the gospel. And uh, this man happened to come into contact. You know, not a lot of people liked him, even at the church. He was a very quirky guy. He was a large and overweight guy. Uh, he was extremely sarcastic, biting in his words quite often. He was uh, in his late 40s and single. But then he met a 21-year-old rock musician who was living very, very far from God and who thought he knew everything. And the Lord used this man with his restaurant and his cooking and his biting words to challenge that 21-year-old guy to read the Bible. And the Lord saved me through a somebody from somewhere who a few years later, in his early 50s, died of cancer. Some of you have been providentially shaped, equipped, and fitted and placed in the providence of God into places and circumstances where only you can be to bring the double-edged sword of His Word to people who will not hear it from anyone else but you. Others of you might feel like you're a nameless nobody, just a something somebody with nothing much in your hands. And you think, who am I that God would use me? Maybe you need to see that God has placed you somewhere 
with an ox goad, and by his power and by his spirit, the things of this world will be put to shame. Oh, I got hit with an ox goad as Brother Tom shared the gospel with me. For consider your calling, Paul continues, 1 Corinthians, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the true and better Othniel, the true and better Ehud, and indeed the true and better Shamgar, who has saved us from our sins. May we go and advance in his victory, proclaiming his gospel to all whom we know. In Jesus' name, amen.